folks, it's time for Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show about the crucial political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and the nation at large. Join us for a stimulating, thought-provoking discussion. You'll get the facts as we focus on the challenges facing everyone. Good morning, folks. Welcome to Democratic Perspective. Steve Williamson here, Karen McClellan, co-host. Hello. <laughs> and another Stephen. I'm not sure I like this, but uh, Stephen Hanks is here. Say hello, Stephen. Good morning, everybody. All right. We have a really good show, uh, I think, for you today. Um, we've done so much on local candidates and Arizona politics. And today we have Tim Miller who is the author of Why We Did It. And it's um, a book, a bestseller, that has gotten tremendous review, uh, reviews. Um, Tim is a, is a gay man who was involved in a, a lot of conservative right-wing politics and uh, uh, was raised in a conservative Jew, uh, uh, Catholic family in Colorado and went into politics, I think, uh, Tim, you were not even out of high school, Harley, when you got political. No. Yeah, I was 16 on my first campaign. And you just love the game of politics, right? Oh, yeah. All right. Well, I'm going to pass you over to the other Stephen for start question. Um, Tim's been a, a, a major player in a number of campaigns from Jed Bush's campaign to um, um, – who else? Uh, he, he wasn't on. Well, I hate bringing up that he worked for Scott Pruitt, but he. he <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was a, that was a biggie. Yeah, we really we really like that. So, I, Tim is, is is really I think a different for for you folks listening is a different kind of uh, interview than we have when we have so so many kind of um, ideological or 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 moral oriented. Uh, uh, interviews and and Tim's done a lot of stuff that that's it's kind of like Shiva dancing with politics and he's ended up in a anti-Trump mode. Uh, Stephen, you want to ask him some questions because yeah. you're the expert on it. <laughs> Tim, you know, first before the questions, I just have to tell you as a long time magazine editor and writer myself, who who uh, does some political essay work on Medium. I got just got to tell you beyond just the the political stuff in the book, which is great and which we'll get into. It, the book is really a great read. I think you did a fabulous job, uh, not only making it informative and authoritative, but um, it's uh, it's conversational and the sense of humor that you display in the book is great and really makes it a, a, a fun, entertaining read. So I give you a lot of props on that on that end. Yes, yeah, certainly. Thank you. I, I did. I did my best to make sure it wasn't homework. Yeah. That was my main. That was my main goal. I wanted to be. I, I have two goals. I wanted to be honest. So people understood what was happening in politics, and I wanted people who, you know, some too oftentimes, particularly in the Trump era, with these books, they just become a slog. You yeah. Know, you just remember yeah. everything, and you live through it, and and people get very haughty with their rhetoric. And I just, I wanted to write a book that was honest and and real about about. You know how we got to this place politically, but also that people could enjoy and that didn't feel like 
you know, a punishment to have to page through it. So I'm, I'm glad that that landed. Thank you. Yeah. I appreciate that. Well, my favorite books during the Trump era are the ones written by reformed Republicans like you. But you you left over Stuart Stevens and Rick Wilson on the on the list of uh, of great. Uh, never Trumper books, but all right, I'm clipping that. There you go. Bit. Don't I'm tell Rick, or I'll never get him as a guest. Two and three. Why we did it has, <laughs> they, has left them. On exactly. the never Trumper. Thank you. Thank. So, you know what? I, what was really fascinating to me, on top of all the inside politics stuff, was, you know, as as uh, a liberal Democrat, I've been in like a low level state of depression probably for six years ever since Trump got elected. But I can't imagine what it must have been like for somebody like you dealing with the existential angst that you were going through, not only being totally disillusioned about the politics, but going through your personal struggle with coming out as a gay man. Um, And you do talk about that in the book, but could you explain for our listeners a little bit what that was like, how long you were going through it, and how you overcame it? Yeah, boy, I don't know how long we have on the morning <laughs> show to get uh, to go through all of that. Um, but uh, the, the Trump part itself, you said you were a low-level depression. I, look, in 2016, it was an acute depression for me. And, um, and, and it was, you know, in part because of feelings of guilt. You yeah. Know, how much did I, you know, was I complicit in this? I, I mean, I... And that's sort of what I try to explore in the book and look back at my own behavior. I'm, I, I hope I'm as tough on myself as I am as on people who went along. But, you know, I, I did bail on Trump in 2016. I supported the Never Trump, uh, 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 the Republicans Against Trump PAC that was called Our Principles PAC. Mm-hmm. And, and I stayed with it. I just, he was too far afield for me. And, and so when he won, I had all these com- combining feelings of, you know, I feel guilty about my complicity, uh, just being a part of this party. My career is over, right? What am I going to do with my life now? Um, uh, and then a feeling of just disappointment that, that compounds over time. As mm-hmm. I watched all of my mentors, people I admired, people I worked for, basically everybody besides Jeb, um, go along with this and go along with Trump. And and so, you know, I just had this complex emotional reaction that, that put me into a, just a really dark, dark place. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think that I... I uh, you know, I'd come out of the closet a little bit before that, so you know it wasn't happening si- simultaneously. Right. But I, I tried to just explore the themes in the book of how you know it was uh, uh, kind of paralleled. How you know when I came out of the closet, I had to deal with this new identity, and you know, and and have to recognize that there are going to be some people that were going to reject me because of this. And, you know, I, I felt like I had to do the same thing all over again by, you know, opposing my party. Because in Washington, your party is just so intrinsic. It's so part of your identity. Mm-hmm. You know, you go to Republican bars, you have Republican friends, uh, you get invited to Republican weddings. Uh, you know, and so to, to, to leave that and to not only leave it, but to look at all, back at all those people and say what you're doing is immoral, mm-hmm. um, you know, obviously makes you, you know, an, out, an outcast. And so in the book, I just I try to kind of explore all of that and the two halves of it. The first half is my own guilt and then the second half is trying to understand why all these folks that I've been so close to that I that I thought were good people went along with something that, that they knew was was dangerous and at some level evil. I think it's a it's a really good read, folks, and something very interesting. It's interesting there's different approaches to politics. I went to um 
a lecture by uh, a Franciscan priest, uh, Richard Rohr, and it was right before the election, and Trump had ridiculed uh, this guy's disability. And Richard Rohr said he ridiculed, he publicly ridiculed someone for their disability. What more do you need to know? Mm -hmm. See, that's the ethical, that's a Franciscan priest looking at it. You don't need to know more about the guy. He's willing to cross boundaries of, of, of behavior that no other candidate, Republican or Democrats, ever crossed. Nobody's ever ridiculed a disabled person publicly. And, and that's, so that's one approach to politics is very moral. Another approach, I think, is more like there's a mixture of morality and, you know, politics. The secret about politics, folks, when in, in, on, on the kind of level that Tim was working, is that it's fun, it's interesting, exciting, it's challenging. It has everything a good career has. And so to leave that and go into the opposition to your own party, wow. Yeah, um, and and I get into this a lot in the book, right? So uh, I, I think you put it a very uh, you know very well about kind of the types of people that are involved in politics and what motivates them. And, and I think that what happened is, particularly when I was coming up on the Republican side, and there's a little bit of this on the Democratic side at the time too, in the '90s and 2000s. You know, people loved West Wing. They loved, you know, Game Change. They liked that, you know, you could go on TV now and be kind of quasi-famous by doing politics. And so people were just attracted to this game of politics. And, like, they, you know, they, we put on one team jersey, the other guys put on the other team jersey, you know, and we go have beers at the end of the day. Like, there's something nice about that, I guess, but there's also something very corrupting, right, if you lose touch with the moral element, the point of public service. Like, why are you serving the public? And, and what ended up happening on the right is this kind of um, mindset spiraled out of control to the point where now everyone is is almost everyone is basically a nihilist. But, you know, there's some handful of ideological Trumpers, but most people working campaigns on the Republican side are nihilists, mm -hmm. and they're just trying to troll, trying to do whatever it takes to win, to uh, to to beat the other side, and and that when and that mindset is kind of what warps you and what allows you to go along with something that you know is bad, that you know is immoral. Uh, on the Democratic side, I see the younger generation. I see something that's a little that's not equally concerning, but concerning in a different way. That, that that everyone is so earnest, right, and so focused on the moral and the righteousness element of politics that they are forgetting the competition part and and, and cutting off their own nose to spite their face at times. And, and really, politics as it should be should be this balance, right? Like recognizing it's a competition, recognizing you're trying to beat the other side, but also keeping in mind that you do that within the bounds of what's good for the country, what's good for people that you're serving, no matter whether they're in your party or in the other party. And, and, I, and, and I feel like that, um, you know, that is really getting lost in the culture right now. And, and I try to kind of expose that, that culture in, in the book. Yeah. Yeah, some of the people you talked about, the one lady in the last few chapters, Carolyn, you know, who sort of went from what you're talking about with somebody enjoying the game and, and being in it because it's a good job and you meet the right people and you have lots of fun. You know, and you described how she basically became a member of a cult, almost a Trump cult idea for somebody who you, who, who you would have thought would have been one of those people who was maybe more cynically involved or just because I can be in the right place at the right time. I'm in the right room. You know, I'm hearing the big yeah. names talk. And, yeah, I, yeah, so I tried to profile, um, you know, about a half dozen people in the second half of the book who are kind of representative of the different ways that people rationalize going along with Trump. And most of them were this that first category. I love the game. I love being in the mix. 
you know, they, they all had different kind of motivators, but, but, but if you really wanted to sum it down, it was just this, this, you know, being warped by campaign culture and, and, you know, money and, and access to power. Uh, Carolyn was the last one, and I, I felt like it was really important to talk about her because she's representative more of kind of like your, the Trump voter, like the people that we all have in our lives who, yeah. um, you know, our uncle or aunt or cousin or friend who got really wrapped up in this. And for her, I think that she was initially in that first category. She loved the sport of politics. She was tired of losing. She had, like, like me, we'd worked on a lot of moderate candidates together. That's how I knew her. And, and obviously moderate Republicans are going the way of the dodo. And in Arizona, you guys know that better than anybody, going from Jeff Flake and John McCain to whatever you got now, yeah. Terry Lake and, and Blake Masters. So, so she, she was losing a lot of campaigns. And she kind of accidentally stumbles into the Trump campaign uh, and and. and gets enlivened by the fact that he's winning, you know, and that, that this can be fun again for her. And, and and what ends up happening is she gets in this bunker mode where she's only hearing about Trump and only caring about the winning, and and she finds herself completely blinded by, you know, all of the all of the damage that he's doing. Um, and And she rationalizes, you know, staying around because, oh, the other people are out to get us. You know, the left is being mean to somebody that I like. Uh, and you get into this sort of bunker mode where um, where now the other tribe is, is not just the enemy, but they're trying to take down some, something that, you, that, you, that has become central to your identity. And just think about that. I know that's hard to kind of wrap your head around and how somebody could let Trump be so central to their identity. But this happens to people in, who are really involved, engaged in politics. And and so imagine that in another circumstance where you think that somebody's coming after your your church, or you know your uh, you know if you're gay, LGBT folks, or whatever else is attached to your identity. Just think about it as sports. You're going after the you know uh, Diamondbacks, right? You become defensive of your own side, and and this is and this has happened to her, and that's where you know I do think that it's kind of it's similar in a lot of ways to a, to a cult. Yeah. Um- Tim, I want to get you into the Arizona politics because you're such a good strategist. But before that, I wanted to ask you, uh, have any of the people that were in it that you knew there were any in any of these Trump enabling categories, no matter what the category was that you talk about in the book, have any of them come to you since the book has come out and they've read it and they've changed their stripes in this period at all? Um, none of the people who are in the book have changed their stripes. Um, you know, a, a lot of them are mad at me. At least I've heard them. Of course, yeah. uh, <laughs> None of them have actually confronted me about it. Um, but uh, I have heard from people uh, who are still in Republican politics and who see things clearly and her, who are more, you know, when I go through the categories, some of them, you know, are like the Caroline is so inexcusable. How do you, how do you get over like this mindset? Very, mm-hmm. you know, you're a psychologist, not a political strategist, but some of them were, you know, I talked about compartmentalizers. And, and this is maybe a good transition into Arizona, right? Like yeah. there are people who work for Karen Taylor Robeson or, you know, candidates like that. And they kind of compartmentalize all of the crazy stuff that's happening in the party because the people they work for, they, they perceive to be good and, you know, fighting on the right side of, of, of this. And, and, you know, they still like the game. And so they just sort of rationalize it that way. I've heard from a, a handful of people in that category since the book came out. You know, who said, you know, I read this. One woman told me that you know, she was in the back corner of a Senate office, a Republican Senate office. She said, I read it all day, one day on my phone, 
and didn't do any work. And, you know, she was getting kind of emotional as she was talking to me and said, I think I need to quit. Um, so I have heard from some people who, who kind of needed a short, a soft nudge um, and, and are, you know, starting to maybe hopefully see that they can, they can do other stuff with their lives that yeah. are fulfilling, which is like the central message that I try to give um, in the book. You don't have to get wrapped up. And, and this is, I think, hopefully universal in any job that you don't, you know, some people do if you need to put food on the table, right? But for those of us who are in politics or college educated, like, there are a lot of options out there in this economy in America. You don't have to do something you don't feel good about. And so hopefully it seems like I've nudged some of those folks. Well, that's got to, that's got to be rewarding on some yeah. level. As far as Arizona, um, so we've got, since the primary the other day, we've got Kerry, Blake Masters, Kerry Lake, Mark Fincham and Wendy Rogers. As a baseball fan, I call them the murderer's row of insurrectionist Trumpers. So uh, what I want to ask you is a political strategist. Do you think this helps make the Dems, that helps the Dems make Arizona more blue because these people are so extreme? Yeah, I hope so. Um, One thing, and and so I just want to say, I, you know, I've, stepped away from doing campaigns, so I, I'm not seeing the same level of data that I used to when okay. I was on campaigns day in, day out. So some of this is just what I'm gathering from hearing from friends who are inside these primaries. Like I said, I had friends, Lord for Robeson. Um, one thing that concerns me a little bit is just that, like, for your average voter, the, the election denialism stuff, especially that's the most dangerous, is a little hard to wrap their head around. Uh, you know, it's just, if you're going around with your life and you're taking your kids to baseball practice and you know, you have a job, and it's hard for you to, like, really believe that the entire democracy is going to collapse, mm-hmm. right? Um, it just it is it's foreign to people. Um, and despite what happened on January 6th, um, you know, people that are not super engaged in politics, uh, that's it's just hard for them to wrap their heads around. I think that their extremism in other places might be an easier way. To, to, to help, you know, pull more folks, across, you know, from who are maybe robes and Biden voters. Some of those people exist, you know, yeah. move them more permanently into the Democratic side. Uh, you know, the abortion extremism, uh, you know, Blake Hester saying we shouldn't do anything to help the Ukrainians, uh, extreme, uh, extremism on economic issues. Uh, you know, I think Masters in particular has taken some pretty hard-line views about entitlement, Social Security, Medicare, obviously important in Arizona. So um, I think in those areas, it's very fruitful. Um, and, and the unfortunate thing is, though, the most dangerous element is of the insurrectionist murderer's row is their insurrectionism. And, and I think that that's important to talk about. Uh, but just getting completely, you know, solely focused on that, I think, is a potential risk area for the Democrats. Interesting. I think that's um, exactly accurate. I think. I think it's not important to an awful lot of voters. It should be. Maybe the hearings will help. But it yeah. is, like you say, something hard for them to get their heads around, something hard for them to see how it affects them. Right. Some of these other issues, like immigration, if you get really afraid of immigrants or something, you can see how that might you might believe that would affect you or you might not. But the insurrection itself, the whole morass and the actual danger to the republic I, I don't – I think you're right. I think it's very hard in an election. I think you need to make the intellectual case, but 
very hard. What other issues do you think are very hard for for voters to understand the danger of the situation or the problem with the with the, with the policies? Yeah, I mean, I, I just I guess I think that anything that is outside the scope of so you, you mentioned immigration, right? I think that's one thing that's cutting in Republicans' favor. Here are the other, you know, the other things are uh, inflation, obviously gas prices. This affects people day to day. Abortion does affect people day to day. I think that, you know, we'll see what happens with the Senate on, on codifying gay marriage. I, I do think that people, you know, particularly in the suburbs, particularly in parts of, of the state, um, younger voters uh, have a little bit of concern about that. And so, you know, is, uh, can, can that be pro- protected uh, after what happened with Roe? Contraception, the same. Um, that stuff is like, okay, I see how this affects my life. So I think that the, the Democrats have winning issues on some of these social issues besides immigration, mm-hmm. where they haven't been had in the past, and they should be on offense on them. And then on the economy, it's got to be a case of, and this is where the Inflation Reduction Act comes in, we're actually trying to help you. I, you know, the Republicans have a little bit of an easier case, right, because they can just be like, oh, you know, your, your pocketbook's getting hit, and the Democrats are in charge, blame them. But but Democrats have to make the case that that, that, that is actually Republicans aren't doing anything to try to help you. They're blocking uh, attempts to help. They're obsessed. They're the ones that are obsessing over the 2020 election. You know, and I think that is where the the election denialism stuff can help Democrats because it's like these people are crazy. They're obsessed with these insane conspiracies, uh, and and we're actually trying to help your day to day life. That's a much better argument than to say than than saying oh these guys are trying to end our democracy which is true by the way it's dangerous <laughs> well, but, but yeah i think framing it more of, of like they just don't care about you they're upset they're you know obsessed with these conspiracies um we care about the pocketbook issues is a better framing yeah because we saw like today's headlines about the uh, the bill that you know the president is just going to sign that has, includes some climate change but it also inc- does not include Let's say a thirty-five dollar cap on insulin because the Republicans refuse to allow that to be in the exactly. bill. You know, uh, we, it does not uh, uh, expand the tax, additional taxes to its like carry carry forward. Just one of those things that nobody can understand, except it only affects real billionaires. And the Republicans yeah. did not, I and our own our own Democratic I, senator I opposed that too. Like on you on yeah. this one. What is happening? What is Kristen Sinema doing? I, I really, I really just can't understand her her strategy here. I mean, I, I, that's the one that's uh, yeah. that's a little bit yeah, it is sort of know, hard to see a, a, a Democrat. Uh, you know, a, a, yeah. yeah. Well, she wants to take your potential spot as a host on MSNBC and then before the <laughs> next election. No, no. I don't know. Uh, she's I don't always know what is happening with her. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm glad she finally came around and voted for the bill. It's really strange. As a as a swing vote, she had a ton of leverage. You know, could have been fighting for, and I guess she did on the drought issue, but she could have been, you know, demanding specific things that would have helped working middle class Arizonans and like is fighting for the head to the carried interest thing. I just. It's hard for me to understand what her what she's thinking, but, but but you know Kelly on the other hand, who's actually up this this cycle, has been really solid, and I think you know is a perfect example of where the Democratic Party should be right now, which is appealing to these suburban Phoenix and and also around you guys like voters who had traditionally been McCain voters, and, and are looking at the Republicans saying, man, they're really far out there. Kelly seems like the kind of person that John McCain could have worked with, you know, would have worked with mm-hmm. on bipartisan stuff. Um, and so I think that he's a he's a pretty uh, easy transition for some of these voters. Hopefully that'll, that'll oh, help. Yeah. After listening here for a month of uh, 
the two Democrat, uh, Republicans for Senate, the two Republican governor, tear each other personally to shreds and ad after ad after ad. I was watching a car race yesterday, and there were a lot of Kelly ads, and he's up there talking about pocketbook issues. You know, calmly, rationally talking about things that affect everyday people, and it was sort of it was sort of a breath of fresh air after listening to to Carrie Lake and Karen Taylor Robson attack each other for a month. Yeah, <laughs> the, yeah I, I, mean, I don't know if you saw this, but, but Lake is at CPAC. Um, now, now you're getting your rant in. Now we're in the politics. <laughs> you got you got five minutes of pure rant. He's talking about putting a stake through the heart of the McCain GOP yeah. and all these yeah. like. Soft Republican uh, rhinos like Doug Ducey, who you know, who have been defeated by her, and then meanwhile, Ducey's running ads for her. I just like this is the stuff that drives me crazy about my former party. It's like Carrie Lake is an insane person. She is maybe maybe not insane. It might be all performance, but whatever it is, she's saying insane conspiratorial things. She's dancing on John McCain's grave. Uh, You know, she's pantomiming putting a stake through the heart of Doug Ducey. And yet Doug Ducey is still helping her. Why? I, I just, I, it's just, you know, despite the fact that I wrote, wrote a whole book to answer that question, why, in some of these cases, it still boggles the mind that these guys just let themselves be debased like this. My guess is she's actually a little bit like Trump. She has the fluidity of the people who are sociopathic. It's easy to switch around and move around. I mean, they're faster than normal people. Trump was faster than any of his Republican um, competitors. He was clever because he has no stops. And and I think that's what I see with Carrie Lake. I'm surprised she pulled it out at the last minute. But uh, I think she has some of that. As for cinema... She's a great mystery. Uh, I interviewed her when she started her campaign uh, career almost 20 years ago. Very talented person. Always talented. Um, Always self-contained. So uh, I'm not sure we can make sense of her political decisions. I know that her fellow Democrats can't um, based on on just tactics. Something going on with her, you know, psychologically that leads to this kind of wanting to be outraged, wanting to be hated. She likes that. She, she, she really likes being out and, and people mad at her and she wants to beat everybody anyway. You know, in, in Tim's book, when he talked about people like Sean Spicer and uh, Tim, you can you can remind me what the category of the of the people who were the ones that were um, – taunted in high school, that, that category. Um, I mean, I think there's the same pathology going on with cinema. I mean, it, uh, the story about her is that she grew up poor. And, uh, you know, even though she started a career seeming much more liberal, um, it could be just simply that she's driven by money right now. I mean, I, I think the easy analysis is, well, she's bought and sold by as people say, the pharmaceutical industry and and some rich people who want their tax breaks, um, which she's been focusing on because it, it's beneficial to her financially. I mean, do you buy that analysis? So a lot of people have said that. I just, I, I to me, I go back to the, I think the Sean Spicer category, which I called the nerd revenger, the right, uh, right. contrarian, the, the, this like desire to want to feel powerful. You know, uh, uh, and, you know, this sort of interpersonal psychology to me seems a little bit stronger than the money answer. I just, uh, maybe I'm wrong about this. I, I don't, you know, I'm not in Christian cinema's head, but 
that she could have get she could leave her job in the Senate and get a powerful role as a lobbyist mm-hmm. at a hedge fund, you know, no matter what. Like, uh, you know, she doesn't have to give these guys a carried interest tax break in order to get that role after this. Uh, you know, she could have done much smaller, smaller favors for them um, and still been pretty well positioned to cash out after she leaves her job as a senator. So I, I don't, so to me, it feels like there's something more psychological about a need to be a contrarian uh, and uh, than than uh, than just purely financial. Well, there are a few uh, Arizona political consultants. One I've heard from just seeing on the internet who sort of said, "Well, she's not going to run. She's going to do just that. She's going to not run again, and she's going to step out and take one of those, you know, million dollar a year jobs." in some think tank or some something, and that's, that's what she's positioning herself to do rather than run for re-election. Who knows? We'll have to Let wait to see until next year. Let me tell you, the music stops when you take one of those jobs. That's what Chris Christie said. I quoted him in the book. It's hard yeah. to get the rush again once you're a lobbyist yeah. Yeah. and being the person everybody's lobbying. So maybe she's, maybe she's going to do that. I, it's hard for me to see how she wins a primary next right. time. Yeah. I think that she's in so far outside you know, what would be expected from an Arizona Democrat you know, she's not. Joe Manchin has a lot more leech. Like he's in West Virginia. Joe Biden won 29% of the vote there. Uh, it makes sense that he would want to distance himself from the party. Um, and you know, Arizona has a tradition of people being mavericks. I think that Arizona would would allow cinema to have some quirky views, but just constantly being a thorn in the side of the party. Uh, Arizona is not is a is a purple state now. I, I, to me, I think that that she's done herself damage politically, uh, in addition to being wrong on the policy. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think that she's been off on both counts. Yeah, Tim, if, uh, looking into the future a little bit, yeah. uh, a hypothetical: if there's if there turns out to be a mini blue wave this year because of all the issues that. Uh, are energizing Democrats like abortion. And the Democrats get the Senate, let's say, 52, 53 seats, which I don't think is out of the realm of possibility. And and they keep the House. Would that be enough to overcome the draconian laws against women and LGBTQ and voting rights in the states, in the right-wing state legislatures? Um. Well, for, I'm a little bit of a rain cloud. I was called rain cloud on my campaigns I worked on. I always said that I was reality cloud. They called me rain cloud because they said I was being negative, but I was just, you know, saying the truth about the, why our campaign wasn't doing well. But uh-huh. so I'll, I'll be a little bit of a reality cloud here. I, I, I still am skeptical that the Democrats that there'll be a mini blue wave. I, I, I agree with you; it's not outside the realm of possibility. Uh, but just historically speaking, it would be so far afield from what has happened in the first midterms, particularly the president with the approval rating Biden has. You know, we're in unprecedented times, so I think it's possible that you get a Macron-type situation where Macron was extremely unpopular, but he still won in a landslide because Le Pen was even more unpopular. So maybe the Democrats get a situation like that, but I'm skeptical. If they do... um, I think that there's certain things that they'll be able to do. Uh, the question is, you know, do you get rid of the filibuster, mm-hmm. which I think is a risky move on the abortion issue because you could get rid of the filibuster to protect abortion, and then two years later have the Republicans flip that right back on you and have a nationwide ban on abortion. And now all of a sudden it's not just Indiana, but Arizona and California that have to deal with this. So that's that's dicey. I, I, I don't. I just don't think that the problem is. Without breaking the filibuster, if you get the 53 seats, then you still have to get seven Republicans for anything. Right. You know, I think that you could do some stuff on contraception and some base, you know, some small ball incremental progress. But um, 
but man, yeah, I, I, I think that it's important that they they do that and uh, and get wins in order to try to uh, you know take steps the right direction. But but unfortunately, I think this is like a generational fight now for the yeah. Democrats that they're in, I and mean, that's how long it took the Republicans to overturn Roe. Yeah, I, I I would tend to agree. What um what issues do you think are best for Democrats? Because I still see a, a weakness in the Democratic campaign in terms of the way that it's being framed. Do you have suggestions for issues, uh, approaches to issues that, that might help uh, uh, Democrats progressive win some seats and uh, and stave off all this craziness? Yeah, I mean, my main suggestion is just to focus on Republican extremism on the issues. So, so just let's just use abortion, for example. The big most of in a place like Arizona, a majority of the voters actually have mixed views on abortion, right? Like they're okay with limits in certain you know, to certain times. You know, it's not like this pro-life, pro-choice binary that you that you get on on cable news. That's like not how most voters are. So if Democrats think about that and 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 put Carrie Lake in this box where she is for, you know, uh, banning abortion um, up to five weeks, you know, and and like they did in Texas or maybe even less. You know, and and you know Arizona. You know the Democrats would maintain more of a status quo. That is like that's a really great. That puts you on the side of eighty percent of the state versus twenty percent, right? If you're if you're arguing that okay, we need to codify abortion all the way up to week forty versus week five. You know now it's like now you're back down to like a fifty-fifty issue. Most voters don't like either of those positions, right? So I think just trying to grab the broad middle in various areas where the Republicans are extreme. Abortion, you know, gay rights, um, uh, of, of course, on uh, on Social Security, and Medicare, like I mentioned earlier, with masters, uh, it's not a state issue for Blake. Um, you know, how can you, you know, sort of position yourself into thinking about where were the John McCain voters? Because that's what you need, right? Arizona was a red state. Like, in order to win, you need to win over people that used to be John McCain voters. Where, how, what, where can I appeal to them by making a case that we're part of this broad middle and the Republicans are out on the far extreme? Yeah. Um, you know, I was to to pick up on what you're saying. Do you think Democrats are afraid uh, in the abortion issue um, of talking about what their limits are? Like, in other words, you know, are they afraid to get put in a box where Democrats would say, well, we're OK with abortion uh, until X number of weeks? Because you really don't hear that. Out of Democrats, yeah, I I think that Democrats are scared of their own base on some of this stuff, and I think that they've been twice bitten on social issues generally. So, yeah, I, I think that a lot of times candidates don't want to answer that question because they're worried that if they say, you know, okay, twenty four weeks or something with exceptions, whatever it is, you know, mm-hmm. then uh, for health of the mother and rape and stuff, um, then. You know, then okay. Well, some you know some of the, some of our activists will get mad at us because you know they they want no limits, right? So I think that they're a little bit worried about that. And then you know, look at guns. This is another example I think where Democrats could take a very a hugely popular position if they focused on things like you know let's ban guns in Arizona for you know for kids under 21. You know, make the gun age the same as the drinking age. I mean, that is a hugely popular position, right? You can imagine the ads that you can run about that. You know, Carrie Lake and Blake Masters, they want 18-year-olds. You know, just walk. you can walk around to high school at the video and say, look, imagine 
Uh, do you want every kid in the school to be able to buy a gun on the internet on a whim? You know, so they can uh, uh, come back. You know, when they're having a bad day. No, I, no parent wants that. That's another eighty to twenty percent issue. Only the gun nuts are support. Um, 21 and under purchase of, of assault weapons. Uh, but, uh, again, I think the Democrats sometimes don't want to focus on issues like that because they get worried that, oh, you know, the gun issues can't come back to bite us. You know, we have our advocates that would want something even much more, um, you know, much more gun control than that. Um, so they might get mad for us proposing this smaller thing. But, I, you know, I think that is where they have this advantage on these cultural issues that they haven't been pressing as much as they could. Yeah. I think Democratic activists push the party to sort of absolutist positions, and you can't be ambiguous about it. So if you were to do what you're suggesting about abortion, which sort of makes sense to me, um, the the base, the ideological support is for it has become very absolutist. There's no ambiguity. You can have abortion anytime. So. I don't know how you deal with it, but I think you've hit yourself on a really important point, which is that to some extent the ideological base of the Democratic Party is the core of the party and good, but it has a shadow side where it forces a lack of discussion of other possibilities and ambiguities. Um, what, is that a fair way to, to characterize it? Is it that extensive or is, or is it just a few issues? Uh, so here's where I, I think it's interesting. I, I, I would say that I would call it the activist, not the base, where the, it's extensive, right? The Democratic base voters now are largely, um, you know, uh, older voters of color, right? African-American, uh, Latino voters. Uh, it is suburban moms, suburban dads increasingly, parents, young like these, this electorate is pretty center left. Like Mark Kelly, I think, is a pretty good representation of where the Democratic base is. The Democratic activists, the people that are really involved in campaigns or working on campaigns or allowed on social media, is they're, they're the ones that have these views that are more extreme. And, and I do think it's across the board on issues. And, and I do think that candidates, Democratic candidates, need to be stronger at, at kind of not attacking or insulting, you know, the activists, but but standing up to them, standing their ground. Um, you know, I think that Biden has been largely pretty good about this, and that was one of the reasons that he won a primary against a bunch of people that were running way far to the left. Um, you know, if you do a, look at a poll of Democrats and ask them to kind of define yourself, are you a socialist, are you a moderate, are you a the, – the thing that comes up most still is I'm an Obama Democrat. Right. Like that's what most Democrats are, Obama Democrats, and yet a lot of campaigns are running to the left of Obama, saying that Obama wasn't good enough on various things. That's yep. a loser. Yeah, uh, both of the both of the primary and general electorate. Yeah, well, that's why I think the the fascinating campaign on the Senate side is Tim Ryan in Ohio, who, yep. if he wins, I think that's going to be a real eye opener for the Democrats uh, going forward. I, I want to ask you a real big hypothetical. Um, okay. Let's say for some reason Biden decided not to run in 2024 for health or whatever it might be. Not that he would be primary, but that he just decided not to run. Would the Democrats be shooting themselves in the foot in 24 if there was a primary battle with Kamala Harris rather than just anointing her as the nominee? Yeah, I don't. 
I'm not sure that there couldn't be a primary for Biden, actually, um, depending on what his numbers are. Uh, and I think that there would have to be a primary with Kamala. I'm, I, I get worried about the Democrats with the identity politics, mm-hmm. you know, that there's going to be this pressure to say, oh, you can't you can't challenge the first black woman. And I get that. Trust me, I, I'm a black go woman daughter. So that we yeah. adopted. So I, I understand how nice it would be to, to see a black woman in the White House. Uh, but, you know, this is high stakes. You know, our, our democracy is really at stake here. And you got to make sure that whoever it is is up for it. And, and she's got to run a real primary. Uh, she can't be anointed. Um, she's, she's shown some weaknesses mm-hmm. on the trail that are not really related to sexism. Uh, you know, uh, Dan Quayle uh, was George H.W. Bush's VP. He was a white guy. Was really not that great. You know, it was just not ready for prime time. Nice guy, you know, and so this is not a personal attack on Kamala. Um, but I, yeah, so I think that the Democrats would have to run a real primary and, and, you know, maybe I think she'd be the favorite and hopefully she would rise to the occasion. But if she didn't, you know, maybe someone else would emerge that, that could kind of rally more support. Yeah, you know, primaries aren't bad things if we could get back to an idea where candidates would actually talk about issues rather than like the Republican primary we just went through here in Arizona, right. where the only discussion is, you know, the other guy is terrible. <laughs> and I know people who said, you know, I don't care what you say that's negative. Just please tell me what would your number one thing be after if I vote for you, you know, if we could get back to that kind of politics. And that's in both parties to some degree, yeah. that, which is unfortunate. Yeah, well, we've yeah got I agree with that. We've, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. We've got three minutes left. Stephen, you want to yeah. ask a, a, a last question, and then we'll wrap it up. Uh, we should get uh, uh, Tim's book out, get the name of oh, his yeah. book. We do want to publicize it. It is a really great, fun read, and I hope folks will do it. If you're tired of really dry pol- political stuff and angst where you can't bear it, uh, Tim Brings the angst, but he brings a sense of humor to it. Yeah, I usually do the commercials for the Democrats and the Red Rock, so I'll do one for you now. Uh, (laughs) The book, and it's a great book, by the way, is called Why We Did It, A Travelogue from the Republican Road to Hell. And it's in hardcover and I assume on audio books as well. There's an audio, yeah. And it's uh, HarperCollins Publishers. You can get it on Amazon and where excellent books like this are sold. Uh, available yeah, on Kindle, audio. Noble, i got to shout them out because they must have bought more copies. So they got more available. So, oh, you cool. Know, if, you, if you just listen to this interview, you're like, I need to read why we did it right now. Barnes & Noble is your spot. <laughs> They've got it. Did you read the uh, audio, Tim? Or no, the they wouldn't let me. Uh, I wanted to, but because of the uh, the second half of the book, as I said, is all these interviews with my former colleagues and friends and uh, and, I guess, amateur Book readers uh, fumble on uh, when you're when you're reading multiple the voices of multiple characters. So they hired a pro. I haven't listened to it, but people have given them uh, high marks. So Sean Spicer did not get that gig. No, Sean no. Spicer didn't get the gig. No, and, uh, yeah, he is I think probably the top of the list of most unhappy about the book. But you know, I bet that's his life. Yeah. So why we did it, folks? It's a great read. It's available pretty much any format that you want. Um, do we have time for a last question, Tom? Yeah. I, I have right, one go ahead, Stephen. Yeah, Tim, any chance that you would ever uh, get involved in advising a Democratic candidate? 
Yeah, well, I don't know. After you read the book, I'm not sure how many Democratic candidates will want to have my baggage. Um, but I would. I, 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 thank you. I, I do informally. Uh, you know, I met with one of the Senate candidates. Uh, I don't want to get him in trouble, so I won't say, uh, in one of the swing states recently when he was coming through the Bay Area and just kind of gave unfiltered advice. Um, and happy, I've, have, have offered some of my friends who are working on Democratic campaigns to come do debate prep where I am I'm the mean Republican. Uh, so small stuff like that I'm happy to do, but uh, I'm enjoying the pivot to writing and I'm focusing on writing right. and I don't, I don't see myself becoming a Democratic strategist anytime soon. Next week, folks, Dan Single, he's a brilliant historian, uh, student of uh, Richard Hofstadter and the paranoid style of American politics. We have Dan on at least once a year, usually twice a year to comment on politics. We want to thank the Democrats of the Red Rocks, the Yavapai Democrats, and we want to thank all our supporters, folks. We really do appreciate your support. We want to thank you very much. Thanks, Tim. been listening to Democratic Perspective, brought to you by the Verde Valley Independent Democrats, a weekly talk show focusing on the political issues facing the Verde Valley, Sedona, Northern Arizona, and our nation at large. Catch us every Monday morning after the 8 a.m. news, right here on AM 780 KAZM. It's beautiful out there, folks. Have a great day.